Good morning. For those who are visiting, we're glad you're here. Welcome to our Lord's. My name is Brock. I'm one of the leaders here, one of the pastors with Brad. I don't know where Brad is. Mike Milner, you've seen him. We are in a really fun time as a church where as God is visiting us, we are uh, getting new vision, new mission, new purpose, and we're going to be talking about that uh, the whole month of April. We're going to talk, we'll take a break for Easter, but we're going to unpack this phrase right here. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. And so we're going to look at that through the month of April. God's giving us fresh perspective and fresh vision, and much of that really is flowing out of this series that we're, we're in right now. This is week 12, our final Sunday in this series on the kingdom, and we've said several times the reason we're looking at the kingdom of God, this was the message of Jesus, wasn't it? So that's a clue, that's an indicator that it's particularly important. And so we're looking at this, and what we're seeing is that it is the great story of Scripture, and that as we look at it, we are drawn into that story. We don't just look at it. It's not words on a page, but we're actually, we have a role to play in this story. So that's why Jesus talked about it, is because he was drawing together this ragtag group of people and saying, I'm bringing the kingdom, and now it's up to you to carry on my kingdom ministry. I was talking with someone last night, and they said, what are you guys looking at tomorrow? And I said, the, the kingdom in Revelation. And he said, one Sunday? And I said, yes, what a, what a task. My desire is to whet your appetite. I actually had an encounter with Jesus this morning, and I couldn't do anything but lay on the carpet. I just, his presence was overwhelming me, and I remember as a young man 25 years ago, that just happening on a regular basis, and the proper response was to lay on the carpet, and his presence was there, and I just wanted to be with him, and I remember at age 17 when he touched me in that way, all the other stuff that was appealing to me lost its appeal. I mean, it, it was ridiculous. At 17 years old, I came back from the summer and came to the high school and my coaches said, who are you? What has happened to you this summer? Actually, some teachers talked to my parents and said, did you guys like switch children and send someone else to school with the name Brock? And so I want to get back to that. Mike mentioned that. I want to invite the church to go back to Revelation 2-4, our first love. What was it like when you first met Jesus? You couldn't get enough of him, could you? Spending time in scripture wasn't a religious duty. It was like, I, I want to know more of him. I want to experience him. So that really is my heart and intent this morning. There's 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. And all I want to do is whet your appetite and show you this, this, is, a, this is the fulfillment. This is where it's all going, friends. This is the end of the story. The goal is what we were singing about this morning. We're going to stand before the maker one day. And Jesus at his right hand. And we're going to give account. And he's reaching out to us in love now. And we have a short little window of time called life. And you get to know him now. 
It's not a duty, it's a privilege. And what's amazing is that he gives us access to him precisely where we are right now. You don't have to clean anything up. He says, come to me now. Prepare for the age to come. The condition that you're in, and actually what happens is when you're in his presence, that's where the transformation happens. It's not get ready before. and No, you come into his presence and it transforms who you are. So I want us to look briefly at the book of Revelation. You can look in your Bible at Revelation 1. We're only going to look at a couple of passages similar to what we did in Acts. The book of Revelation, chapter 1. I'm going to encourage you, too, to start bringing your Bible. I've mentioned before I'm rather old school, so bring your Bible. You may even want to bring a notepad or something. You can sketch some things out. It helps retain some of this. And I want to invite you afresh. Become a student of the Word of God. You're never too old. You're never too young. At 17, when I realized that this wasn't a boring, outdated, dusty yellow book. I said, I'm going to give myself to the Word of God at 17. And it was the only thing that satisfied. So I'm calling us as a church, give yourself to the Word of God afresh. And that's what this final book in the New Testament is about. If you look at the very first verse there, Revelation 1, we're going to look at verse 1 and then skip down to 4 to 6. It's difficult to cut anything out because this is actually a prophecy that was meant to be read aloud. And it was written to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Some of you have probably been to those sites. This was a what's called a, a circular letter. So it was written and it was a prophecy that was meant to be read aloud in the context of worship. It's one of the most worshipful texts in the entire New Testament. You can't help but just read a few phrases and your heart goes somewhere else. Your mind is transformed. You realize this is who made me, who made me for a relationship with him. So we look at verses 1, 4, and 6 here, and we see from the beginning what this is about. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. John, the author, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. It's just a few verses here, and we see from the very beginning what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the king, first and foremost. This is a book. It's not about end-time timetables. It's not a mystery to decode. The text says right here it's a revelation of who? Jesus. He's the object. He's the subject. He's the focal point of this book. It's an invitation for these seven churches and for the churches throughout time to lift up their eyes and see the Lord of history. It's a revelation of the person of Jesus. And the word is apocalypsis. 
So it's really a pulling back of the veil and showing the majesty, the splendor of Jesus. As I was revisiting this this week, it was like I saw these opening passages here, like a neon sign blinking. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If you are interested in looking at the most fascinating human being that's ever lived, this is the book for you. He is the most fascinating, interesting, powerful, tender, deep person there is that's ever lived in human history. Think about it for a moment. History revolves around him, right? This dude from the Detroit of the Middle East, a town called Nazareth. He has 12 people around him, motley crew of nobodies, and human history revolves around him. And so this book is showing us this is the person. Are you interested in knowing him more? Get lost in the book of Revelation. And I would encourage young people, spend time in Revelation 1 to 5. If you want to have your world changed, spend time in Revelation 1 to 5. You don't even need a commentary. Just start praying it. Lord, I want to know you. I want you to reveal who you are to me. At age 16, Lord, start now. I want to be 86 and wrinkly in a chair, rocking chair, meditating on the same revelation of the Lord Jesus that I started 70 years ago. Isn't that beautiful? The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says at verse 5 here, it begins to unpack who he is. These two names at verse 5, he is Jesus Christ. The Greek is Iesus Christos, the two most powerful words spoken in human history. That's why I love the Jesus prayer. Lord, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. The demons tremble. Sin flees. Your mind, your heart, they're changed when you call on Jesus. Some of you know that it's the Hebrew word. He's Joshua, Yeshua, and he's Christos. So it's bringing together the old and the new. He is the new Joshua that's leading his people. And he's Christ. He's the promised anointed one that we've been looking at for 11 weeks. This is him. This is the fullness of the revelation of who he is. Look at the next description of him here. The early church said what they found here is a revelation of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And the first designation here after naming him is what? The faithful witness. What does this mean? The word is martus. And it's related to the word martyr. Jesus is the faithful martyr. Lance, I knew you would like this. Lance's prayer and martyrdom burning in his heart. And Jesus is the greatest martyr that's ever lived. And so what this means here, he's a faithful witness to the Father. He's experienced his Father and he comes and gives accurate testimony of who he is. If you want the best eyewitness account of what God is like, Jesus is the representation. He is the living icon of the Father. So he gives this beautiful witness, but it also cost him his life. He is the faithful witness to the point of death. So he's identifying with the Hebrew prophets, the Old Testament prophets who would come and declare who Yahweh was, and it didn't go very well for them, did it? Oftentimes they ended up thrown in holes, sawn in two, like Isaiah. So he is the faithful witness. What's the next designation here? He's the firstborn of the dead. 
And the Apostle John here is referencing a psalm, Psalm 89, actually. And John is saying, this is him. This is the promised one. He's the firstborn in the sense that he's preeminent. In the ancient world, the firstborn son was the one who received the blessing and who carried on the family tradition, the family name. That's what this text is saying. He's the first in the father's family. It's him. He's the firstborn. One of the early church guys got this wrong, and he thought that this meant that Christ was created somehow. His name was Arius, and he started an early church heresy. This text is not saying that he was the first creation. No, he is the unbegotten God of the Father, and the creeds tell us that. It's a mystery. It blows our minds. He is the uncreated God in human flesh, and we get to contemplate him. We get to worship him. We get to interact with him, and he indwells us. This is Jesus, the firstborn of the dead. We could go on and on about this. It also means that he's the first to rise. We're going to rise from the dead one day. And so if you want to see what that looks like, look at him. He is the firstborn of the dead. This next one is stunning. A second description here. He's the prophet, the great martyr, but he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This morning, I was, as I was on the carpet, face down, and I was thinking like you do in that moment of all the things that produce anxiety. I've got this to worry about, this to worry about, these things that are out of my control. And he said, do you not realize the ruler of the kings of the earth indwells you? And so at that moment, I shifted. I said, would you make my heart your throne? Enough of this worry. I can't even do, I'm thinking about this person. I can't even do anything to address that situation. You are the ruler of the kings of the earth. And oh, I'm telling you, it changes everything. Your perspective changes. Let's get on our faces before him. Really, that's, that's what I would say this morning. If there's anything, we need a fresh glimpse of who he is. That's the answer. Is your marriage broken? Get a fresh glimpse of who he is. Is your child a prodigal? Get a fresh glimpse of who he is. Are you addicted to something and you've been stuck? Get a fresh glimpse. This is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he's ready to come and make his home in you right now. The veil is pulled back. Not only do we get to see who he is in these phrases, we get to see what he does. Look at what it says, church. At verse five, layer upon layer of this stuff here. It says, to him who loves us, the ruler of the kings of the earth loves us. His prophetic ministry is rooted in love. His kingship is based in love. His priestly ministry motivated by love. This morning he's saying, I love you. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. And he's freed us from our sins. How? What's it say? As our priest... He has freed us through his own blood. At no point in history has there ever been a priest 
who said, I'm going to offer myself. I love these people so much that I'm actually going to give myself. So he is the priest, and he's the offering at the same time. The ruler of the kings of the earth. I read a quote from a guy who was a professor at Wheaton College, a guy named Alan Johnson, and listen to what he says. This is a beautiful one sentence here. Christ's kingly power is chiefly revealed in his ability to transform individual lives through his blood. Yes, he rules over creation. He rules over the nations, but that's evidenced as he transforms people like you and me. The early church fathers called this the great exchange, that somehow we get to take off our dirty clothing, stinky, soiled, sinful, and give it to him. And he gives us bright, clean, shiny new clothing. Quite a deal because of his blood. I read a story this week of a woman from Persia, from Iran. Her name was Jolie. And at age 14, she was involved in a protest at school and with some of the other students, went out in the street and protested. And the officials didn't like it. So her punishment was rape. They took this 14-year-old and instead of just reprimanding her or disciplining her, they raped her and it wrecked her life. And so Jolie ended up on the streets of Iran, Tehran, and her life was a mess. She didn't have anywhere to turn. She sold her body. She was filled with guilt and shame. She writes about multiple abortions. She was empty, hollow, and haunted by guilt and shame. Someone invited her to a house church and she went said, what do I have to lose? She goes to this house church, secret believers meeting. She encounters the love of Jesus. She becomes a Christian secretly. She's still walking the streets. Jesus eventually draws her out into a new family. She's married. Her husband is not in favor of what's going on and still it's fairly private. She found herself in another large gathering of believers, and she said, I am a follower of Jesus, my husband's not, and I want to encounter him in a way. I hear all these stories of other people encountering him in dreams and visions and reading the scripture and him coming to, and I haven't experienced that. And she says that she's afraid that she's done too much. She's too separated from him. And as these women circled up around her, the presence of Jesus came over her, and she encountered him in a way that she never has. And she writes that Jesus spoke to her and said, were you about to give up? Do you not know that I'm your friend? I love you. I've always loved you. You are mine. And in a new way, she gave herself to Jesus. She went home to her husband, who was pretty antagonistic, naively told him about this encounter and he was converted on the spot. The residue of what was on him, on her, Jesus touched me. She boldly shared with her husband and he said, I want that. So she was able to pray with him and he was converted, experienced the love of Jesus and now the two of them are secretly coverting, planting churches. 
in Iran. So Jesus displays his love, the power of his blood here in America, in Iran. He's doing it all over the world, church. The second thing I want us to look at that flows out of this revelation of who Jesus is, prophet, priest, and king, it flows out into who the king's people are. Our identity is rooted in this revelation of him. The order is important here. Verse 6 explains, look at what it says. It explains what it means to be people of the kingdom. So because of his love and his shed blood, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father. This means many things, but what John is doing here is he's linking the church, the New Testament church, to the Old Testament people of God. In Exodus 19, God liberates the Israelites and he says, I'm going to make you my kingdom people. You're going to be kingdom, priestly people. And so what John is doing is linking the New Testament church to that people of God. And he's showing us that God's intention is only fulfilled through the coming of Messiah Jesus. Those promises that burned in the heart of God are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus what in the world does it mean to be a kingdom and a priest? Can I get technical for one moment here? Is that okay? I wanted to set this aside, but what does your Bible say? He made us to be what? But before that, a kingdom. Does it say the kingdom? No. A kingdom. Okay, I want to get technical for a moment here. The kingdom creates the church. So we are a kingdom people. We are not the kingdom. Make sense there? And this is very, very important here. The kingdom of God creates the church. We are not the king. The kingdom of God is the rule of God over all of creation. The rule, say the rule of God. The church is the realm of God's rule. You see the difference here? And the church has gotten this wrong a few times in history. We are a kingdom people. The kingdom creates us. We carry the kingdom. And we are subject to him. The church is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God established in human hearts. Is that all right if I get a little technical there for a moment? Very, very important that we realize that he is always king. He brings his kingdom. He rules over all of creation. He rules over his church, and we are the realm where that happens. The visible manifestation is we say, your will be done. The kingdom is exhibited. Very, very important. Quickly here, I want us to look at what it means to be priests. My friends, you are a priest Perhaps your heart is stone cold today. God wants you to be a priest. Perhaps you've turned your back on Jesus. You've been away from him. Maybe you had a bad week, a bad month, a bad season. Jesus is saying today, would you like to be a priest? Would you like to have direct access into the presence of the Holy of Holies, the Holy God? It's for you. It's for me. It's the only thing worth giving ourselves to. We're not going to look at it. You can write this down, but Acts 13, 1 to 3, gives us 
an insight into what it means to be a priestly people. You've got at the church there at Antioch, you've got this gathering of people. And in Acts 13, 2, it says, while they were worshiping, they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke. Said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So you see the early church functioning as priests here. These women and men that are gathered together. And what do they do? First, they minister to the Lord. They worship him. They wait on him. The order is incredibly important. Where do you think they got that? Where do you think they learned that? Christ himself. What would Jesus do? Very, very busy in his ministry. And what did he often do? Luke 5 says he would often slip away to the wilderness. He would retreat into the desert where he was ministering to the Lord. All it means is to stand and worship and receive from God. We don't have anything to offer him except our need for him. But church, we're called to minister to him to receive from him. And why is it that we often get this order out of place here? I want to go get busy for you. I'm going to be a Christian activist. I'm going to go and do and do and do and I'm going to work and I'm going to prove that I really like you and that you like me and I'm going to earn. No, no, what? Call to be priests, to be with him first and foremost, to receive from him. Jesus said this in the great commandment, didn't he? The children sing about it. Love for God, love for people. Ministry to the Lord, mission. Some of the great Christian writers say that the missional is mystical. That you learn your mission and you're sent into the heart of the world only as you live out your intimate union with the Lord Jesus who indwells you. The mystical is missional. Ministry to the Lord first. Some of you might say, well, ah, do we just end up locked up in a room or something? No, 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 no. If you encounter him, his heart, his word, you are set ablaze. You will be the most missional person you could ever become. But the order's important here. Church, you are priests, all of us. The text doesn't say, hey, some of you, Only the men are priests? Only the women? No, men and women. Only the rich? Only the educated? Only those who go to this church? No, it's the entire New Testament people of God who are priests. The Apostle Peter says it in 1 Peter 2, 9 as well. So the king's people, I want to wrap up with this here. The kingdom's completion so we've got the king himself, we've got the king's people, and now the completion of the kingdom. This is heavy stuff. And as I was looking at the wrap-up of the kingdom of God, I was thinking, Lord, it's difficult to think of analogies and pictures. And this just dropped into my mind. Mia will remember this. We had a tyrannical soccer coach in our Macon soccer club. This guy was a jerk. One of the, I just, I don't know what this guy's deal was, but he wrecked the whole league. It was like, oh, he's coaching again? And he would 
take 10 and under girls soccer and just poison the whole league. It was awful. I would dread. I love the time with Mia driving, but if we were playing this guy, I thought, oh no, got to play this guy again. And all his players are arrogant and cocky and they beat everyone 9-0, 10-0, 12-0. Ruined the whole league. One season, the underdogs that we were, the bad news bears of the league, got to the final and we got to play this guy. And we went up 1-0 at halftime. Right before halftime, it was 1-0. And we were thinking, oh my gosh, could we really beat this guy? Could we pull this off? And we did. But all we had to do was hold on to that victory and live into it. Little Sophie scored a left-footed shot. Boom! Upper 90. And we were up 1-0. It was amazing. It's the same thing here. The kingdom is coming. We're up 1-0. The victory's won. Jesus planted that in the upper 90. It's over. Live into it. We're on the Holy Ghost Barcelona soccer team. We can't lose, church. We can't lose. It's unbelievable. So look, with that in mind, Revelation 11. Fifteen through seventeen. We'll end with this. So many things to talk about here, but this is the number seven just means completion. So it means the the seventh messenger is about to bring this message and blow a trumpet and sound right in the middle of this book. Right at halftime. The victory's already won. Listen to this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. I'm so fired up, I lost my place here. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, singing, we give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who were, who are, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. This is the central theme of the book of Revelation right here. George Ladd, a great kingdom theologian, says the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth is happening right now. This involves the wrenching of authority from all the hostile powers, including the godless nations of the earth and all the demons. And it is the moment when God begins to exercise all authority by the Lord and his Christ. This is the moment that we've been looking at and anticipating. The Lord makes the kingdom of this world the kingdoms of God and Christ. It's stunning. And you can look at the end of the book, Revelation 21, 22, talks further details about this. That the bride, the church, And the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, are joined together. And the Lord's prayer is finally answered. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the only proper response we see here is the 24 elders. And they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And who else? The 12 apostles. So this is a representation of the people of God responding to the kingdom 
coming and being consummated and fulfilled. The exaltation of Jesus, the triumph over the nations, what his death and resurrection secured. And that's the proper response. Why don't we stand?